You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is the wily William Gallagher. Uh, I'm thinking previously, oh, hello, sorry, you've said wonderful. Wiley, I, I quite like that, actually. Yes, I just now need to think of a similar word for you, and I'm, I'm struggling. Oh, I'm just going to call you brilliant. Now, Wiley is an adjective, and it means skilled at gaining an advantage, especially deceitfully. <laughs> okay, you're building an image of me here that actually I really like. Yes. Can we add in low cunning and a tiny bit of evil? Because I think that makes me sound, you know, hot, frankly. But suddenly I'm getting embarrassed uh, by that. Hi, how are well, you? How have you been? I've had a very nice cup of tea. It wasn't Yorkshire tea, but it was tea. Now, I, I, I'm aware that okay. you're willing to debate whether or not point tea that is not Yorkshire tea is in fact tea. <laughs> yes. But at least, you know, breakfast tea is real tea. Fruit teas, they're fine, but they're not teas, is what I'm, I'm thinking. You know, I want strong. Um, there's a phrase in Britain called builder's tea. Uh, you know that thing where, I mean, I don't use um, sugar, but if you do, if you can take the spoon back out of the mug of tea, it's not strong enough. Right. That's Understood. the way I like it. Well, we have a few things that we need to cover, and then we'll get to a very special segment of the episode. And I know people who listen frequently know that we've, we've held off from holding interviews for a little while now. But this is one that I think you'll want to stick around for. We get to talk with Ken Kashenda, author of a book entitled Creative Selection, which is all about the design process at Apple under Steve Jobs and his experiences as an Apple engineer. So I'm uh, and you're right so to. You're right to, to. It was a yes, good time speaking with him. So, first of all, the important news is that Apple has announced their event that is going to stream on Twitter, of all things, on September 12th. Now, they, they've announced the event. They've sent out the invites. They haven't said streaming on Twitter, but uh, a report that came out from Boy Genius Report cites a source with knowledge of the company's plans saying that Apple's going to hold the event on September 12th. We know that to be true. And that Apple will, for the first time, stream the event live on Twitter and its mobile apps. Now, we predicted, we predicted way back, we predicted I'm... weeks ago that the event would take place on the 12th at the Steve Jobs Theater. They've always streamed the keynote on the web for years. Uh, before that, they streamed it on QuickTime. They, they've put it up on the app on Apple TV. And here it's going to be on, on of course, the phones as well. But, but Twitter, that's a new one, isn't it? It is new. I mean, going even further back, they used to do a live satellite feed that uh, independent TV stations, if they were mad enough, could pick up or or fans with big dishes. Um, that sounds wrong somehow, but people could plug into broadcast versions of it. So they are using every technology possible. And I suppose this is the next step. It seems funny to do it on Twitter now. It feels late doing it on Twitter because Twitter's kind of going off the boil. I mean, I feel that as a user sometimes, but didn't uh, the latest earnings reports um, end of July for Twitter say they've uh, lost a million uh, users in the last quarter. And that's real users, not you know various fake accounts that have been closing down. So odd that Apple would nip in now. But Twitter's in a sort of a weird position because it is it is one of the big default places that people go for social media. Um, you know, it used to be said that Facebook was where your friends were and Twitter is where the people you wish were your friends were. 
Yes, that's true. Where does that leave um, Friends Reunited and MySpace? And let's not pursue that. Do you know, suddenly occurs to me, um, if that's know how to produce that they know will have a massive audience and they're going to put it on twitter is this possible that it's actually a test of how well twitter copes with it in advance of all of this television that apple's planning to release you know i'm uncertain i'm not sure because t- twitter i don't know it, it there's a lot of reasons to like twitter and there's those equally in large number of reasons to dislike twitter and clearly Apple needs to promote and they need to promote in, in modern ways. Twitter is one of those ways. Um, but running the live event yeah. is I mean, they've had problems with live events before uh, when uh, capacity was too much. I remember when they first did it on the website with uh, an ongoing commentary that was actually beautifully done of screen grabs flying in, quotes and images. Uh, it just totally fell apart because there was so much going on for it. Um, there is an Instagram TV now, IGTV, and I would have expected them to use that before they use Twitter. But it's interesting. I'm still going to watch it on my Apple TV, though. Possibly, but that's... Yeah, absolutely. Well, the t- the Twitter is is one thing. The Instagram TV is yeah. a Facebook property. And so there the question is, why wouldn't they do a Facebook Live kind of thing That's as true. well? Uh, mind you, this is certainly slightly related. Have you seen the pop group that did a video uh, on uh, Facebook Live standing in front of a giant projection screen showing Facebook Live? Uh, so obviously there's a little delay as things go around, but they were uh, doing duets with themselves and then a uh, previous version of them would come on and do it. And you, you just built a, quite a dull song really, but it built up into this cacophony of absolutely gorgeous uh, music and video uh, using that built-in delay. I don't think Apple's really going to do that with Tim Cook. Right. And no, but what's interesting about that is that that historically is based on the work that Les Paul did at Ampex that created multi-track recording. And that same place at Ampex where that was done was what was responsible for nonlinear editing, which eventually became, wait for it, Final Cut Pro. Right. I can tie it all together for you, okay. I promise. Can you work in Walter Murch and his approach to things just to make this a complete package for me? I'm a fan, you see, Walter Murch, a video editor, audio editor. Um, he did things like The Godfather and The Conversation. So he's a legend and he was one of the first to bring um, Final Cut Pro, actually specifically Final Cut Pro. He brought it to Hollywood with Cold Mountain. And there's a really interesting book of uh, exchanges about why he did it. And uh, Steve Jobs himself, I think, uh, there's an email saying, please don't. <laughs> and yet he did anyway. Yeah. Well, we're going to cover all that next time because we've running out of time. We've got to talk about a few other things first. Big deal. Apple is buying augmented reality headset lens maker Aconia Holographics, which is, of course, fueling rumors about um, what? Drinking glasses, maybe. Uh, oh, ships in bottles. Yes. yes. It could be doing some of that. No? No, that's more what they're calling. Sorry. But also head-worn augmented reality glasses. Okay. This is going to be Google Glasses all over again. Well, I certainly hope not, because that that failed for a few different reasons. But the notion is that if there are holographic lenses and augmented reality glasses, that that can pave the way to to an augmented reality experience that has a greater field of view, um, immersion, things like that. And that's that's important. If you believe that augmented reality is the future and has applications outside of games then this is something that you have to do. 
Now, I, I think of this as on a long enough timeline that the glasses go away, that if you have augmented reality and it becomes a part of your user experience interacting with technology every day, that over time, the glasses become contact lenses, that you, you no longer need something head-worn. But first, we have to get head-worn done right. And so this is a part of that. Okay. I find actually I'm not interested in augmented reality in games. I am interested in, in everything else. So I am more drawn to these possibilities. I just, I don't like the idea of contact lenses. I'm squeamish about eyes, but I take your point. Yes. Um, we all become Geordie LaForge in Star Trek. Don't well, we? I mean, contact okay. lenses or implants or, or whatever you care to do, right? Right. What a world when we can talk about shoving electronics inside our bodies. But yes. So when do you think we're actually going to see the results of um, uh, this acquisition? Well, so th this acquisition has been sort of on a simmer for the past six months. Um, the the acquisition itself is happening now, we think. But the actual results of such a purchase are further down the line. And I say that because at the same time, Apple is meeting with Taiwanese firms about micro LED display technology. Now, the, the first thing people think of when they talk about yes. micro-LED is using it in the watch. And the, the current micro-LED sort of, of way that people can do it is to get a pixel that's down to somewhere between the, the, mm -hmm. the 30 and the 50 micron size, right? Um, and one of the things that happens when you start shrinking pixels is that the borders of the pixels become proportionally larger than the actual pixel itself. So you have to work out ways to shrink the border of the pixel as well. Um, color reproduction becomes more difficult because the, the traditional sort of, of lenses that you'd use over LEDs no longer work. So you have to start figuring out how to do that. Um, what you end up doing is uh, quantum dot filters. Um, but these, you know, they tend to be when they start getting very small, when you get below that 30 micron size, you know, you're trying to aim at 20 micron or even five micron, which is incredible. Oh, these are numbers that I just, you I start can't doing things like gallium nitride. How small, how small is five microns? I mean, okay. Very microscopic. Small. Tiny. <laughs> I'm trying to... Yeah. You know, the, the, you end up taking a big magnifying lens to look at very tiny pixels just to be able to see where the different yeah. parts of the pixel are, where the pixels meet, right? And so the, the beauty of that is when you use it on something like an Apple Watch, then of course you get a very high resolution, very beautiful display that looks like an image that has no jaggedness, no, no differentiation between where one pixel starts or stops. And it's gorgeous. Now, obviously the watch is nice and that's a great application for the watch, but when you think about it in the context of the augmented reality lenses, the idea of having a lens close to your face that's got essentially an 8K resolution yes. or greater is huge because then you start to, to lose any ability to distinguish between the augmented part of the reality and the actual okay. reality. And that's where immersion happens. When you, when you have a wide field of view and you have – that kind of all of this is really interesting it, and very exciting really and yet the moment you said inability to distinguish between augmented and real reality i just suddenly wondered i i mean i haven't i've walked into trees walking around reading books and things i, I would be prone to accidents with this and i'm i'm sure apple will do it very nicely and then i won't have any worries but right now okay you wear them well, first. One of the things that they could do, right, is is accident avoidance. Right. <laughs> you know, and 
there are a number of different things, right? You don't, when I talk about wide field of view, that's, that's sort of being optimistic and hopeful. The truth is that you can do things to be efficient in the use of your graphics power by focusing on the detail in front of your eyes and then making the detail degrade away as it gets to the wider part of the field of view because you don't actually need perfect detail at the edges. But you do need to be able to see that the field of view continues to the edges. That's part of what makes it so that you don't get seasick. Mm. So actually, this and could replace uh, spectacles, if you like, with uh, screens so that they forget the adjusting to bifocals. They do the adjusting for you. They respond and react. They could polarize themselves in the right uh, sunlight and things. Right. You know, and just as I said, accident avoidance, you know, think about this. If you were, if, if you were sight impaired, if you were vision impaired and were walking along, then instead of just being reliant on the, the current tools that are out there, and those current tools are things like a walking stick or a seeing eye dog or a person assisting you kind of thing. Um, but now you also are able to have glasses that tell you what you're looking at or tell you what's in front of you or tell you what's to the side of you and help you avoid mm. or help you recognize your surroundings. That's huge. And I think that would also help you avoid bouncing into trees. Yeah, I'm remembering now this uh, Wood Lane outside uh, where BBC Television Centre used to be. There's a series of uh, metal posts in the middle of the pavement. I think it's to stop bike riding, come up to about crotch level. And I was reading another book and I walked straight into one of those. The idea that I could be reading a book on my iPad and one of the characters I'm reading could say, William, you should look up Right, now. so the thing that you um, walked into, the metal that post been... that's about waist height? Interesting. That's called a bollard. That's the technical term yeah. for that is a bollard. Slightly lower than waist height. Oh, okay. It's quite a quite a rude word, they, really. So they exist didn't to want keep to go there, from but, driving uh, into yes. the facility where you don't want people driving in. Okay, I think in this case they just had some spare ones that were sounds about up right for, for the practice, beep. perhaps, <laughs> or or to defeat okay. people so like me. That's but. those are the pieces of news that I really wanted to cover. I wanted to talk about micro LED and the augmented reality glasses and. We're really looking forward to the new iPhone announcement coming September 12th. Uh, there are, again, three models that we're anticipating. There's supposed to be an iPhone 10 follow-on, a plus-sized device, and a more affordable OLED screen device. And we'll tell you all about it when they happen. Oh, yes. William. And I'm, 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 I admit this. I try not to. Every time the invitations come out and they have that cryptic thing, I think, no, forget it. You'll never work it out. Just walk away. But nope, the words gather round have been going in my head constantly, trying to work out what that could mean. Yeah, those are the words on yes. the invite. And we don't exactly no. know. Why do they do this to me? Me personally. Fair to torment enough. you. It is. That's that's what they're thinking. Phil Schiller sits behind his desk at the spaceship campus and says, now how, how am I going to torment Wiley William Gallagher this week? I was thinking, was it to do with the wiliness? Is that's what's, that's what's put me on Apple's radar for this. Um, I'm probably the subject of their Sunday night meeting every week as well. I can easily imagine that. And, and you're obviously Monday to Thursday meetings, clearly. Okay, clearly. Great. Well, let's let's stop all of this. We're going to adjourn this part of the segment and go ahead and speak with Ken Koshenda, author of Creative Selection. This episode is brought to you by Jamf Now. 
Jamf now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your Apple devices. It's easy to keep track of your own Mac, iPad, or iPhone, but what about the other Apple devices at work? As a business grows, so does its digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices, and this is especially true if employees are remote. With Jamf now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, and even lock or wipe a device as needed from anywhere. Jamf now manages devices so you can focus on your business instead. No IT experience needed. And now, Apple Insider Podcast listeners can start securing your business today by setting up your first three devices for free, forever. Add more for just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash appleinsider. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash appleinsider. I'd like to welcome to the show a very special guest, Ken Koshenda, author of Creative Selection, Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Uh, Ken is a former principal engineer of iPhone software at Apple. He uh, also worked on, and you know, the iPhone keyboard was one of his projects, as well as Safari and WebKit. And uh, welcome, Ken. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now, I I know we just mentioned the uh, the, the iPhone software and the keyboard, which are, of course, big big deals. But when I was reading the book. Um, you also mentioned having worked for a small startup company, uh, Easel. Yes, and at, you know that yeah. was that was uh, Andy Herzfeld's first one of his projects along the way. Sure, it's it's the company that I worked at immediately before joining Apple. Uh, I joined Apple in two thousand one, and for the preceding uh, year and about three months or so, uh, I worked at uh, I worked at Easel. Yeah, with Andy Herzfeld and uh, Bud Tribble, and we were trying to make uh, Linux on the desktop. A uh, uh, a wonderful system for people to use. Yeah, and that was the that was the goal. <laughs> well, least. that was one of the the battle cries that I remember hearing so much back then. That this year was going to be the year of Linux on the desktop. The year of Linux on the desktop was supposed to be uh, two thousand <laughs> by our reckoning. Yes, yes, it didn't quite work out. Well, we that got way. OS ten instead. Yes, yeah, and and it's interesting because um, I went directly from Easel to Apple, and I wasn't alone. It's actually when uh, when Easel, when it was clear to us that that Easel wasn't going to make it, um, it it's kind of a a typical story of a, of a dot com bust. We we had a good amount of funding, we had what we believed to be a good amount of momentum, and then um, all of the funding. Uh, dried up right when our first round ran out. So the company was in a bit of a hard, you know, a difficult situation. And so, um, but it was stocked full of terrific engineers. Uh, and uh, com- many of them who worked at Apple previously, uh, some worked at General Magic. And uh, of course, as we mentioned, the company was run um, by people like Andy Hertzfeld and Bud Tribble. Now, I think what happened is that uh, one day Bud got on the phone to Steve Jobs and said, hey, look, yeah, we've got this company. We've got this really terrific set of engineers. And so what Apple did was they, uh, they, they threw us a party, basically a job fair. And quite a, quite a number of former Easel people wound, it up, uh, wound up at Apple. People like Don Melton, who I uh, started working on the Safari project with. Uh, later, Darren Adler, who is still at Apple. People like John Sullivan, Maciej Stachowiak, um, a whole host of people. Pavel, uh, uh, who, um, uh, Sizzler, who is the, uh, I still think, uh, working on the Finder at Apple. Uh, Brian Kroll, who's been in marketing for a long time. A whole set of people from Easel wound up working at Apple and making Mac OS X great, like you said. I was hoping you'd name Maciej Stoshoyak, because uh, Maciej was the guy that I knew oh, 13, 14 years ago now. 
and yeah. and uh, going back to about 2005. And he and I were hanging out in San Francisco after the uh, actually the night before the the keynote that introduced the iPhone. And right. and he was he was I could tell he was just bursting at the seams trying to avoid telling me anything. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, Mache is uh, a, a terrific, terrific engineer. Just, just incredibly, incredibly smart, incredibly talented. Yeah, it was great, it was great, great, great to work with those people. And and that that set of people from Easel formed the core of the the team that um, uh, made Safari and WebKit. Yeah, and he was he was saying that at that time something like a Nokia E sixty one or E sixty handset that he had was running WebKit. And that was the day before the iPhone announced, and it was just one of those very perspective right. shift kind of things. Here was this this Nokia handset with a keyboard, and the next thing you know, we're looking at a beautiful t- panel of glass. Yeah, it it was. Um, well, of course, the iPhone was a pretty uh, terrific project to be involved in, and yeah, I mean, you mentioned that that moment. I mean, it's it's. I, I think it's a good thing that you 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 fixed in your mind, you know, like an experience you remember of what it was like right before uh the iPhone got announced uh because i obviously that that changed a, a, a lot for uh for many of us uh, not only in technology but then just also in the world at large absolutely now I, I was going to ask you a little about, about Conqueror because I was also at the Macworld where um, where Steve announced Conqueror was going to become the basis sure. for the new web browser at, at that time. Right. Microsoft Internet Explorer 5 was basically the only game in town on Mac. There, there were other things like you used to be able to run Netscape or uh, iCab, sure. but Conqueror right. was was an interesting choice. You know, I, I had run Linux and I'd run things like that. And right. can you tell me a little, a little bit about the, the I, I know you recount the story in the book, but tell our listeners a little bit about how sure. that choice got made. Sure. Well, when um, Don Melton and I started on the same day at Apple, and our job was go make a web browser. And I had never worked on one, but Don had. Uh, he, uh, before he joined us at Easel, he worked at Netscape, and he was uh, very, very deeply involved in taking uh, Mozilla and making it open source. So that open source angle was in his mind. And so there we were, a team of two, working on this secret project that Apple charged to make a web browser. A web browser, pretty big, complicated program. Uh, you know, a program really too big for two people to start from scratch and you know, ex- you know, with any expectation that you could make progress quickly. So that's where the idea of open source came from. Don said, no, 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 we're not going to start from scratch. Let's go out and try to find a, a project that we can use that's got an, an open license, a free software license, open source license that we can use as the basis of our project. And initially, we looked at Mozilla. I spent um, uh, a few weeks, really, trying to get Mozilla building on Mac OS X. But, you know, we need to change our perspective back to the time uh, when we were working, which was uh, the summer of 2001. Uh, Mac OS X had just been out for three months. But even the iPod, never mind the iPhone, but the iPod hadn't even been released yet. So Apple was really still an underdog in the tech world. Uh, And as you mentioned, Microsoft Internet Explorer was the default browser on the Mac. And so here we were, this was the situation that we were in and trying to figure out an open source solution. And Mozilla's, you know, basically uh, because of Don's experience with the product was our leading candidate. But once I got into it, spent those few weeks, boy, it was like Mozilla was a huge code base over like a million and a half lines of code. And I just wasn't making very quick progress. 
And right around that time when it was becoming clear that, wow, boy, this open source project seemed like a good idea, but maybe this is going to be harder than, uh, than we thought it might be. Uh, we were joined by the third person, uh, uh, on our team, a fellow named Richard Williamson. And he came in and he did one of the most, uh, incredible feats of, 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 of software wizardry that I've ever experienced in my career. Uh, he joined us and within, uh, a couple of days, we, we gave him an introduction on the project. He had never worked on a web browser either, but within a couple of days, he went out and found yet another open source project, which was Conqueror, uh, from the KHTML, uh, Linux desktop project. And he uh, whipped it into shape. He, he, he managed to uh, uh, roll up his sleeves and get that software working under X windows on, on Mac OS X. And with, like I say, just within a couple of days, he had a demo of it working. He was clicking links and surfing the web. And when he showed it uh, to Don and me, we were amazed. And uh, right after that, we went and looked and saw that Conqueror was about 10% the size in terms of lines of code as Mozilla. And that just then got the ball rolling. And uh, it's still rolling. Um, it's actually just a couple days ago, August 24th was the 17th uh, anniversary of the first check-in of that, that, that Conqueror-based effort for uh, Safari and WebKit. So that's how it got started. It was, um, it was this uh, small effort with just a few people and trying to stand on the shoulders of giants and, um, and, and conquer and KHTML was the, was the path we chose. One of the things that I take away from that is the power of a good demo. Oh, oh absolutely. It, it, you know, at Apple, everything that we did, every, every, every good piece of software that I was involved in, every project that I'm, I'm proud of, uh, both as uh, just an Apple employee, uh, never mind uh, uh, projects that I was involved in uh, myself, all of them started with demos, with ideas, and then making something concrete that you could show somebody. Uh, and, and the premise behind that is that, well, eventually we want to ship something to customers out in the world. Uh, and, 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 and we found that the best way to wind up with that end result was to create demos that as closely as possible and as early as possible approximated that product that we wanted to ship. So yeah, demos were absolutely key to our decision-making process, our creative process, our technical process, and, and, and the, the, the whole product development cycle. Now, let me ask you, and this, this is a little silly in terms of the browser, but in some of the other projects you've worked on, can you talk about how you – do you paper prototype before you make the, the demo? Because that's one of the things that I've done in my past is, is trying to mock up and make paper prototypes and try and interact with them to see if the interaction makes sense before we try and build something. Right. You, you know, that, that is something that, um, that uh, some, some teams at Apple do. Yes, of course. Um, you know, pretty much the, the you, you know, the goal, I think an important goal is to uh, reduce the amount of time that it takes to move from one iteration to the next. So you have an idea, you try it out, and then you know, maybe you think about it a little bit, you get some feedback from some colleagues, and then you want to turn around and, and make a response, uh, make the next version. Um you know, but what's, you know, what we found, you know, certainly, you know, where here's the important, 
uh, counterpoint to that, however, is that you, you know you might be surprised to hear that we did almost no paper prototyping um, for the iPhone, for the original iPhone. We we simply didn't do it, and and uh, there's a, there's an interesting reason why is because we were so focused on making the multi-touch system work that we found that paper prototypes couldn't approximate it well enough. So, um, so from that point, I personally changed over to trying to get software prototypes, actual, uh, software running on the target device as quickly as possible. So after I, I started working on the iPhone and what became iOS, I really stopped making paper prototypes. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's probably just because the the iPhone is such an interesting development part target device that having multi-touch available, it, it, it changes the way you think about prototyping. Yeah, you know, and part of it is just the, the 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 physicality of it. I mean, the whole ergonomics of it, the the uh, holding the device in your hand, uh, whether you're maybe if you're right-handed, cupping it in your left hand, and and then using say your right index finger, or taking that two-handed sort of thumbs-free grip, what have you, um, changing just the the angle that you're looking at it, um, you know making sure that the light is just right. I mean, all of those things really matter. Uh, and, and I found were, uh, were essential to, um, uh, understanding whether a particular demo worked, whether a touch target was big enough or whether an animation was too fast or too slow. So getting the software running live on a device to me was an essential part of, of, of evaluating it, even from a very, very early stage. Now, can I ask you to, to just change a little bit what we're talking about and think about taste for a moment? Huh, you know, sure. the taste is one of the things that Apple's renowned for. And of course, when you were mentioning whether an animation is too fast or too slow, I started thinking about it. Um, and, and there's another point in your book where you're talking about designing multi-touch gestures for the iPad and, and sure. uh, Steve's comment that, that the scrunch gesture was this, this is Apple or the springing gesture when you'd go to switch between applications. So right. how, how big a role does taste play and how do you define it? How do you know when you're, you're close to something that could be thought of as tasteful or, or like Steve said, this is Apple? Right. Well, you know, this, this response, you know, the way that I think about taste is that you start with what I call a refined-like response, that you try to build some ref uh, refinement into your sense of judgment about things. And, uh, this is, this is kind of a, a long process that, you know, you, and, and you, you can do it all the time. Um, uh, you can, you know, you can have a tasteful response about virtually anything, you know, where you're sitting, the objects around you. Um, and, and not only, you know, and, and it, it extends, uh, you know, you know, beyond what you, um, what you think of as, as just, um, uh, you know, maybe like an artistic um, uh, or a design response, because you know the way that software has become part of our lives 
uh, and it's becoming increasingly part of so many interactions that we have. It's this, this emotional feeling that you get, um, this, this, this immediate feedback of whether you like something or you don't. And so that's where I'd really want, that's where I really start is you, you know, as a, as a, as a designer of software, of things, of, of technologies is, is trying to build this sense, this refined sense of judgment immediately of whether I like or don't like something. And that's where it starts. And so when I develop something, a piece of software, a new demo, um, or if I look at a piece of work that somebody else is presenting me for criticism or feedback, I try to decide very, very quickly whether I like it or not. Um, but then, of course, it doesn't it doesn't end there at all. Then, then you try to figure out, okay, well, I like this, but then what, where does this particular demo fit into a larger system? So then it, it extends out to trying to balance all of your like, don't like responses. Um, so that eventually, um, you can balance them out. Um, you know, I like this, but I don't like that, but boy, this needs to trade off, you know, some animation, uh, you know, leading from one place to another is, uh, brings two things together. And so you have to figure out whether those two things work well together. And then, you know, in the end, you're trying to create this, this overall balance and this overall pleasing, intuitive, uh, experience for people out in the world. Um, so, you know, so again, you know, this, this taste to me is this three-part process, refined, a refined sense of judgment, like, don't like, then trying to balance things out and ultimately create things that, that integrate well and are overall, uh, uh, pleasing. And I think that this, you know, this is the definition that I've come up with for myself, but I certainly didn't come up with this in a vacuum. This is kind of the, 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 the overall approach of, of Apple. Uh, uh, everybody has their own set of taste. Certainly someone like Steve Jobs had a very, very strong sense of taste. And so, um, you know, we, we had this pyramid of people like me at the, you know, at the individual contributor level and then feeding up through managers and then executives like Scott Forstall and Steve Jobs, you know, uh, at the time that I worked there, you know, eventually trying to come up with, uh, products that are pleasing and, and, uh, and, and, and useful and intuitive for everybody. Can can you talk a little bit about what that that development process and approval process or management process is like at Apple? And one of the things our listeners are, are going to be hungry for me to ask about is how it's changed uh, in the years before and after Steve's passing away. Right. Well, let me let me go back and talk about you know sort of set a, a, a set a foundation for that. Talking about it uh, again from the time of of the work that I did on on the iPhone. Um, and, you know, it, it goes back uh, to things that we've already talked about, making demos, uh, showing them to people, uh, and then getting uh, people to respond. Uh, this is why the demos themselves, having them be real, having them be something that you could try was really important. The more concrete, the more specific a demo was, the better the responses could be. And so... What then happened starting from these demos was this long set of um, iteration or this long uh, process of iteration uh, where we would take one demo and uh, look at it, evaluate it, and use the feedback from a demo to 
decide on action items that would transform that demo from uh, the one that it was to the one that it will be. And then just keep going, uh, repeat again and again and again. And then there was kind of this parallel track where I would show, you know, I would develop a demo and show it to maybe a colleague in the next office. Uh, uh, but then on a, on a regular basis, we would then begin to show those demos up the management chain. Uh, so I would show it to say, uh, my, my manager, say at the time, Richard Williamson, and then his manager, Henri Lemireau, and then his manager, Scott Forstall, and then, uh, eventually to, to Steve. And so there was this pyramid of demos where, um, uh, say I, when I'm showing to a colleague, we would do that many times a day. And then, you know, eventually becoming, uh, um, uh, uh, on a, a more periodic basis, you know, once every week or two, we would wind up showing work to Steve. Um, so it's this, this, this winnowing down process of many, many, many demos, improving the work, uh, step-by-step step, and eventually trying to get the, the high level approval on, uh, on work, uh, so that, you know, eventually we'd have something we could, we could ship in a product. And has, has, we, you know, we, we always sort of in the, the listener space here think of Steve as having been a, a deciding voice, you know, sort of a benevolent dictator in a, in a way. Sure. And it, sure. do you think Apple is still that, that same way or, or how have things changed? Well, you, you know, Apple has always had a very strong culture that is, is pretty consistent. I mean, you'll, you'll even hear, uh, uh, people, uh, even though, you know, t Tim Cook today will, you know, say, you know, the Apple's DNA, I mean, that there really, there really is this, this thread that, um, that connects the, uh, the, the work that, that Apple is doing today. I mean, uh, now I'm, you know, I, I, I can speak with authority to, you know, uh, up to about a year and a half ago, but you know, I, I, I think the culture is strong enough that it continues, uh, you, you know, mostly, mostly to this day. Now, of course, the big difference between the times that I was just talking about and today is that Steve has departed. Um, and, and of course, uh, he's not such an easy person to replace. Um, uh, he, he was, uh, he was a unique person, but, um, but people fill the gaps. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, everybody, uh, realized that there was going to be, uh, more pitching in, uh, uh, more, um, it was going to be more of a team effort, uh, and, and less a matter of, um, having maybe a, uh, the single person at the very, very tip of the pyramid making as many decisions as he did. Now, let me ask this, because I'm always curious about how Apple's arranged, is one of the things that you mentioned was the DRI role, the directly responsible individual. And I'm, right. I'm sure that right. continues to go on. I'm, I, that, that doesn't seem like something oh, that's going to sure. change. Is Oh no no that's yeah that's that's uh, that's that's a, a key part of how we do work but you had a question Well my question was you know at, at other companies that you've worked at or other places you've worked besides you know easel I suppose would be one of them was there the same notion of a DRI less so uh yeah less so um, you know, but I, 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 you know, and to just describe this, uh, for people who are listening, who are maybe un, you know, unfamiliar with this, this term DRI, directly responsible individual, this was, um, it was a, a, a formal recognition 
um, whenever we had a project at Apple, whenever we needed to deliver something, a single person was made responsible for shipping whatever it was, a technology, a design, perhaps even a whole product. And yes, it really was to the extent of an entire product. So like uh, for all of uh, iOS uh, during the time that, again, that I worked there for many years that I worked there, Scott Forstall was the DRI for iOS. So he was responsible for the entire software stack. But then, of course, the parts were divided out uh, among people on his staff. But see, this is the thing that uh, is really worth mentioning, is it that it wasn't necessarily divided up among the people on, say, Scott's staff, divided up uh, among his direct reports in a way that really closely mirrored the management hierarchy. It didn't. So... Uh, except for a very, very short time in my career, except for three months in my over 15 years at Apple, I, I was an individual contributor. And yet there were, you know, a, a, a couple of times that I was called out as uh, the DRI for uh, for a project. Um, and it, the DRIs were really important because it facilitated communication. Uh, if there were, was ever a question about a technology, you would go ask the DRI and the DRI would know. The DRI had to know. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, so it, it really, it helped to make communication efficient um, and it helped to make, uh, to, to, to make decisions um, um, easier to make because the DRI was empowered. Um, and uh, naturally, as the decisions became more important, they needed to be approved up the management chain but the DRIs were always given a surprising amount of authority to to decide how the products would would turn out and what the de and say what the demos to Steve would be. And so, yeah, the DRIs were really, really, you know, a, a, a key part of, of how we did our work. It, it feels as if there's a lot of individual empowerment at Apple, both with the DRI and with just individual contributors that that you're you have sort of liberty to decide which parts to tackle sometimes or, or things like this. It's, it's, it doesn't feel like there's a, a management structure pointing you and saying, you, you're working on this part right now kind of thing. Well, I always found that Apple was a, uh, a, a wonderful mix of top-down uh, management and bottom-up uh, contributions. You know, it was very, very clear you know, again, during the during the times that that we're mostly talking about here, while you know, during the Steve Jobs era, that that Steve had opinions, and yes, there would be uh, how should I say even edicts that would come down from Steve. Steve wants this to be a certain way. Absolutely, that would happen, uh, and certainly he made the top level decisions about what kind of products that we would make. Uh, he decide he was the one who decided we we're going to make um, a touch screen. Uh, smartphone. Um, but then once those top level decisions are made and, and, and the product is, is defined in, in, in reasonably loose terms, then yes, DRIs are, in, uh, are assigned. And then uh, people like me, you know, I would get a little slice of the pie and then I was responsible for defining what would happen. Um, and collaborating with other, the other DRIs and the other offices and hallways around me. Uh, and so, yeah, we all, we all work together, um, from, uh, the individual contributor level on up to generate the ideas 
and and uh, uh, create the designs and develop the code uh, and filter those back up so that the managers uh, and the executives could make their decisions. Uh, and again, then that cycle would happen. We would get very, very decisive action from people like Scott Forstall and Steve, and it would kind of keep the the flow going. You know, the top-down decision would 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 filter back down, and then the bottom-up responses would uh, would 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 bubble back up. So, how how does Apple maintain the DNA? How how does how does this keep going? Well, you know, to me, it, this is a, a a matter of culture, and culture is people. I mean, that's re- that's really it. Um, there is, um, uh, you know, a, a process of of cultural transmission. Um, now, of course, I don't work there anymore, um, but of course, uh, I interacted with. Uh, many, many people who still are over many, many years. And, and so, you know, I like to think at least that there's, you know, still a little bit of me still, um, still there working even today as we're talking, even though I left, you know, well over a year ago. Um, but that's how it happens. Culture is people. Um, and, and it's, uh, but it also, you know, culture also evolves over time, uh, as situations change, as the products you make change. Um, and so it's that, you know, I think it's an effort to, uh, you know, maintain, you know, maintain the best of the past while, you know, keeping your eye, you know, facing, uh, facing forward, not slavishly, uh, um, um, uh, impersonating the past, <laughs> um, but, but trying to, um, you know, retain the best of the past and the, and the lessons that you've learned and you know, as you go on and, and make and make and do new things. So I, I, I really appreciate that answer. I, I know that it's been a, uh, over a year since you've worked there, but I, I thank you for letting me ask those questions. My my sure. daughter, who who insists that I mention that she wanted to ask this question, wanted to okay. talk about autocorrect because she finds herself very frustrated by it. I'm sure. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you must have heard something <laughs> about that sort of criticism in the past. Maybe, maybe someone has said something on the the internet. But um, <laughs> says, yeah, yes, websites like "damn you autocorrect." <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, making making fun of keyboard autocorrection. Sure, I've heard that. So th- this this autocorrection was one of the projects that you worked on. Was one of the things that made you the keyboard DRI for iPhone OS. Can you speak to a little bit about? Uh, the the project itself and and of course what you'd say to my daughter who's frustrated well i'd i'd say to your daughter who's frustrated that i'm sorry uh i did the best i could um but i i think that you know again um going back to uh what i was talking about earlier about uh, uh, when we were talking about taste and 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 balancing um out different aspects of a product um, and I think that the way the the keyboard turned out is is a, is a prime example of of trying to find this balance. Um, so if we think back to smartphones before the iPhone, well, of course, uh, the BlackBerry is maybe one that comes uh, comes to mind um, very easily. And um, the the design of that product was uh, you know, included a hardware keyboard taking up a. a a large part of the front face of the product. There were this, there was this collection of plastic keys that was, uh, 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 that, that were always there. You, you, uh, you couldn't, you couldn't get them out of the way. 
and that because the uh, the keys were there, that also meant that the screen was smaller, uh, leaving less room for displaying content. And so the whole premise of the iPhone was to take that hardware keyboard and turn it into software. Uh, and since it was software, it could then get out of the way when you weren't typing. And and again, this, this idea was just an absolutely key concept for the whole for the whole product that, um, that most of the time you're, or at least much of the time you're not typing. And if the screen could be, uh, if that screen real estate could be made available for apps. And then of course, if, uh, you know, there's then, a a, a system where, uh, eventually as, as what happened, third-party developers could come and, and add their, uh, contribution to the platform, well, yeah, now you've got a general purpose computing environment that um, is, um, you know, will give people to the opportunity to make that device turn into so many different things other than a device that's always got a keyboard on it, right? Um, so, you know, so so turning the keyboard into software and and eventually uh, coming up with uh, auto correction, working as well as I could make it work was a, was a key part of the whole the whole product concept, and and I think uh, helped to give momentum to the, to the product that we've seen uh, um, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, show itself over the last uh, dozen years or so maybe 10 years or so. What, what was the hardest experience you had while working at Apple? And, and what, what did you learn from it? Well, you know, I, I would say that the, the most difficult part was the stress level, trying to come up with a strategy for maintaining um, a high level of proficiency, you know, and, and, efficiency over a long, long period of time. Uh, and, uh, viewing the work as a marathon and not a sprint. Uh, so, uh, we, you know, we all cared so much about how the products turned out. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, I, you know, maybe, you know, we, you know, I, I hear the feedback from your daughter about keyboard autocorrection. Well, that, that, that affects me. I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, I almost want, you know, I wish that we were, uh, you know, uh, you know, face to face that I could, uh, you know, actually even, uh, see how your daughter is using the iPhone and perhaps, um, you know, if, uh, if I were still working there, you know, then, uh, use, use that, use her feedback to help maybe improve the product. But, um, you know that that emotional involvement over the long term was uh, was was something difficult to deal with. So what I did was I found that I needed to work very regular hours. You know, you hear stories about some people how they just killed themselves, uh, 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, and uh, sometimes that was necessary in the late stages of a product push. But I just found that kind of keeping to you know more in the eight or nine hours a day was. Uh, was a strategy to try to concentrate while I was there and then uh, try to uh, disengage from the work at least a little bit, go home and have uh, uh, you know, a, a life with my family, with my wife and my son um, as, as just a way to uh, keep the concentration uh, focused while I was at the office. Yeah, we, we, we do hear stories a lot about how the stress and, and the demands of the job take a toll on people. You know, I, I remember reading about... Um, 
Andy, actually, I was talking with him on Twitter, Andy uh, Grignon, who is the behind Apple, I, iChat, AV, iSight, and Dashboard, and things like that, that the, the iPhone right. pretty much destroyed his marriage. Yeah, I, 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 I've heard that. I, I, I know Andy, and 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 um, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been sorry, you know, I've been sorry to, you know, to hear that, um, and uh, I certainly didn't, you know, want that to happen to me, uh, and uh, I, I recognized that uh, it would be possible. You know, there's always so much to do, uh, you know, and and and, and again, you know. Uh, uh, talking, you know, mentioning again, this, this notion that we had, how, you know, every demo informed the next demo, which informed the next demo. And really you're never done. I mean, you know, you know, every demo that you do, every, every, uh, every product that you're trying to make, uh, there's always something more that you could do to make it better. Uh, you always have another idea. And if you don't, somebody else will, uh, about how to improve the product. And so it, it you know, in a way it can suck, it, it, you know, it can, it, it you know, it, it creates its own gravity. Um, and so I, you know, I, I found, you know, pretty early on in my Apple career that, that, you know, as, as, you know, as much as I was committed to that, to that process, I was also committed to doing it in the long term. So I, I needed to somehow find that, that work life, that work life balance as best I could. <laughs> so let me ask you, uh, wh why'd you leave Apple and what are you working on now? Well, um, I, 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 well, I'm working on this book yes, now. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, so, you know, it's, it's a difficult question to, to answer. There's, 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 uh, uh, you know, there's several things that, that feed into it. I, I, you know, and, and some of it is, uh, is personal, but I, I think the, the easiest, um, uh, explanation that I can, that I can give and that I'm, you know, I, and that I'm, I'm willing to talk about is that, you know, after a while, um, uh, you, you, you know, I, I, I was always worried about repeating myself. Um, and, and I kind of look at myself as a, as a zero to one kind of guy, uh, that, that I like taking ideas that, uh, for products that don't exist yet. And, um, and, and then making that first version. Um, I did that with, uh, Safari and WebKit, did that with the iPhone, did that with the iPad and the Apple Watch. I was involved in the first versions of all of those products. And, and I, I consider myself pretty lucky to have had those opportunities. And, you know, I just got to the point in my career where um, uh, I asked myself, well, is it going to be another product? Is that what I want to do? Or do I want to try a more, um, you know, a sort of uh, 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 a more complicated reinvention of my career? And so I decided that, um, yeah, that it was time to try something else. And I did, when I decided to leave Apple, I wasn't really even sure what that was, but, uh, within just, uh, uh, really it's just, it's funny how things work out just a couple of weeks, uh, uh, after I left Apple, uh, I had a book contract. Um, so, uh, uh, I, I have been working on the book for, for over a year now. Uh, and it's been a whole new learning experience to, uh, to try to apply some of the lessons that I learned at Apple making a product. I've looked at this book, writing this book as making a product. How do I apply those Apple lessons to now a completely different field, a completely different endeavor? And so that's what I've been up to. Well, I, I want to tell you, I have enjoyed reading the book. The, the book is, is well-written. It is engaging. It's easy to read. 
And uh, I'm really, really grateful that I got a chance to look through it and, and have you on the show today. Well, thank you so much. And, I, and I'm, I'm very glad that to, to hear that you enjoyed the book. So thank you. I, I think all of our listeners should definitely go ahead and pick up a copy. Where, where should they get it from? Where would you have them buy it? Well, you could go to my website, which is creative selection, all one word, dot io. Uh, you can also uh, just search for uh, creative selection in your uh, favorite web engine. It should come up. Uh, hopefully, maybe like an Amazon link will be uh, near the top. And uh, so, yeah, so uh, either either my website or a search engine near you. Fantastic. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna cut here, and we're gonna go ahead and do the uh, the, the the closing parts now. And I got a couple ad reads, so I'll record those as well. But let's just do the end matter. Well, this has been another episode of the Fantastic Apple Insider Podcast, and I am so glad that you joined us for it and made it to this part. We're at the end. William, where can people find you on the internet? Absolutely. And, you know, what we ought to do is the next time we have one of those, you and I should both be present for it. We should try and work that out so that we can both ask questions. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he said he'd be happy to come back, actually. We'll sort it out. And if you'd like to give us feedback, we'd love to hear it. Go ahead and email us at news at appleinsider.com. We will be back next week with more. Jamf Now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your Apple devices so you can focus on your business. No IT experience needed. With Jamf Now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, and even lock or wipe a device as needed from anywhere. And now, Apple Insider podcast listeners can start securing your business today by setting up your first three devices for free forever. Add more for just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash appleinsider. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash Apple Insider. <laughs>